Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Raushin Karni is an award-winning writer, director, and producer who returned to filming after taking time out with her three children. She has an interest highlighting social issues. Her short pilot, The Family Way, a comedy exploring an unexpected pregnancy and no dogs, a one-minute short highlighting child homelessness, are available on YouTube. Her latest film, Patty, which explores racism and identity in 1970s London, is currently in post-production. The film that I saw, the short film, that let me know about Roshan and the work that she does, written and directed by Roshan and Carolyn Grace Cassidy to highlight the signs of coercive control after legislation was passed to make coercive control and emotional abuse a crime in Ireland. Its next screening will be at the Flying Broom International Film Festival, flyingbroom.org, in association with Dublin Feminist Film Festival between May 7th and 14th. She is wonderful to talk to. She has a wealth of information and she's a wonderful person and has made a very, very powerful film, among other films, that I would love for you to be able to see one day or be able to show at a festival that you're hosting. Roshan is wonderful. And I hope you got to hear part one of our conversation last week. Here is part two. Parental alienation is something that people do need to research. It it is something that uh, happens in so many situations where you have one parent who does need to win. It becomes this competition. Yes, they are jealous of you. When you're nursing your child, they'll interrupt it. They'll, you know, they'll need to make it so that there is this disconnection and you can't be the favored one. Parents or uh, the partners of people who do this parental alienation, I see them as thieves. Like they're robbing these children of being able to have a relationship with the other parent and really feeling like there's this adult in their life who does love them and does care about them and is safe to be with. And just to take that away from a child and confuse them in their minds. And sometimes it takes years to turn it around, especially during kind of growing up impressionable years where that information gets imprinted. Um, then you are just taking care of yourself at the expense of other people and, and really at the expense of your children because you really are being cruel to them. And I think you, I think you know, generally speaking, if, if there's a separation due to coercive control, narcissism and all the rest, that trait doesn't go away just because they're not with the person anymore. And that control and manipulation will continue on children, you know, and sometimes it is best not to have or to have less contact or, you know, it's, I suppose it's very much down to an individual circumstance, but often kids will be used and be like, oh, well, what were they doing yesterday? And why, why are they, are they going out anywhere tonight while you're here? And what, so it just continues on and on and on and on, which is very frightening um, and does need to be addressed. I think it's something that needs to be addressed as well. And it's so, like, it's so horrendous to think of a child having to deal with that or to feel like they need to lie or to feel like they need to protect um one parent from another you know it, it's it's too much for them it's a you know too emotionally challenging and it will lead to issues it will lead of course lead to mental health issues and and just a sense of sadness and loss you know they should feel protected by everybody around them. you know that everybody around them would do anything for them you know at all times absolutely right and i think also kids realize only later on that they were used for information yeah, and information to be used against the other parent. And they thought they were just being asked innocent questions and getting involved in a conversation that felt quite innocent. And the person was taking notes and, uh, and to use kids in that way too. It's also very, very cruel. And, um, you know, it's, it's reminding me as you're talking about this sort of subtle coercion, sometimes it's more subtle than others. I'm remembering back about a relationship that I was in years ago. And 
when I would call this person uh, at his office, I could tell if somebody was in the office with him based on if he was nice on the phone or not. And when I started to understand that, that if it was me, I was interrupting. And even if it was something he had asked me to get back to him about, uh, and can you call me and let me know about such and such by this certain time? And I was like, sure, you know, no big deal. And I would call, uh, why are you interrupting me? You know, you need to respect that I don't have time just to pick up the phone whenever you call, blah, blah, blah. And then like now it's like, blah, 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 blah. But uh, at the time it felt like, wow, I really did something wrong. Um, uh, or then I would say, but didn't you ask me to call you? Why are you questioning me? It was all that loop, you know, that sort of, you know, you couldn't get out of it. Uh, but if somebody was in his office, I knew because he'd say, oh, hi, how are you? Put me on speaker. I want to talk to my girlfriend. And uh, she's lovely. And that's her picture right there. And I knew I could tell it was for an audience, you know, and and that's one of the signs. If somebody if somebody's different when other people are around than they are with you, you want to run for the hills. <laughs> like, bye bye. Bye bye. Go, 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 go. Well, we all have little bits and pieces that we do around our party that we wouldn't do around anyone else. We're quite we're quite happy to be in, in the big baggy PJs and the slippers. Yeah, anything like that. Anything where they go into I'm the best behaved person in the world and and Avondice such a wonderful, caring, loving partner because someone else is there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and once once I was on to him, I wanted to say, Thank you for including me in on your play. <laughs> like I felt like like he was giving me a role in this fantasy play, you know, his reputation. Uh, okay. So you mentioned something to me also is an interesting word and I wasn't familiar with it when we were just speaking in prep for today, but you mentioned the term feeders and I would love, I mean that, and I'm sure there are other things like that, that people are not familiar with back to these subtle signs of control. Can you describe what that is? And if you have other examples of things like that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, well, a feeder is something that I would have come across and something that in the 90s, but it is um, a partner who will purposely make their partner gain weight. So they will encourage them constantly to eat and to overeat. They will say, oh, you know, the world doesn't know who, what a wonderful, and I love you there's just more of you to love and these sort of comments and would actively encourage someone to gain and gain a lot of weight with kind of love bombing techniques, you know, to a certain extent. And, and I've even, I've actually physically seen it done as well. I've seen people, someone sitting on a table going, no, do you know what? I've had enough. I don't want something. And lifting up a spoon and going, oh, but you love dessert. You know what I mean? And physically, literally feeding that person. And um, again, it's a form of control because their attitude is the bigger they are, the less likely they are to attract attention from other possible suitors in their world, in their head. And then it's also a way of, once they get to a point that they can use it against them. They can go, oh, but sure, you've let yourself go, but sure, there's no, you know. So controlling how someone looks is a very big aspect, I think, in general of coercive control. Be that trying to force them to lose weight, to be thinner, to, you know, be smaller, to get plastic surgery, to do, you know, all these things. Um, It's part of a kind of ownership mentality. Like, I own you. And so feeding is also part and parcel of that. Like feeding was, it was something that, as I say, I came across in the 90s. And um, again, I never necessarily associated it with a form of domestic violence, but clearly it is because it was very much about controlling the partner and being able to be in control of their physical appearance as a female is a big piece of control like it is a big chunk of control like and um you know it's like people someone said to you oh well I wouldn't like it if you cut your hair you know and it's you know it's like oh that's something 
very personal. And it's why I'd always say to my kids, they say, oh, you know, I want to do this. Or off you go. It's your hair. It belongs to you. <laughs> now, as I said, tattoos, you know, they're a bit young. <laughs> but, you know, that it, it's really important for me to give them that sense of their being and their body and their ownership of that and how they treat that, that it's something for them. And it's so everything about that is their personal choice as they get older. And um, so watching someone purposely and like to the point of being morbidly obese, I mean, it's not, you know, and um, and being a health danger. Is, you know, it's it's horrendous and. um like that I've seen the opposite. I've seen people practically becoming anorexic because they'd be told, you know, you have too much weight or do you think, you know, your belly's getting a bit big or is that, and again, some of, that's one of the things that you can see, you know, after someone has a baby because anyone who has ever had, you know, your body changes fairly much permanently, but for the, certainly for the first year, it's quite a dramatic change. And, um, you're busy and tired and that sort of thing of you've let yourself go and you know I do, are to the point where it's like oh but I don't find you attractive anymore like I mean if someone only finds you attractive because of a physical attribute again you're kind of in a worried kind of relationship you know because it, that just isn't part of but um but yeah the feeding thing is quite and again like people can look it up and I wouldn't have necessarily I certainly wouldn't have thought of it as a form of domestic violence at the time but now looking back and with greater knowledge it I think definitely is you know it's definitely part right it's such it is abuse it's endangerment it's I mean ultimately along with all of these other things it's just ultimately selfish uh but I think also that it's um, whether it's feeding someone or uh, taking away food or telling them that they're not skilled at what they were doing uh, before as an artist or a singer or a writer or whatever else, uh, taking away their confidence, their ability to get any kind of positive accolade from anyone else. Um, the, it's the presentation of it that's the thing that drives me crazy because it's so obtuse and and it's not like somebody is saying you know for real you know you think you have a good voice but it, I don't want you to embarrass yourself I'm saying this for your benefit uh you know that would be harsh but I could see where that might come from uh, in kind of a protective way but the the where it's presented as uh I care about you and that's why I'm doing this for you um it's because I love you uh and it's really I mean, if they could change the pronouns and just have it be, it's because I love me that I'm doing this to you, right? Uh, that would be really much clearer. Yeah, I'm doing this to you to make myself feel more secure. I am using you as a prop for my own ego. Mm. So you also mentioned something that I was not familiar with because now that you have studied this uh, in different places in the world, uh, and I was also going to ask where you've been able to show this film um, and the different responses that you've gotten to it. So that's the, sort of the next piece. But you mentioned something about how in Australia that there is an issue with older women and homelessness. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was just something I came across in that I made, I made a short film called No Dogs. It's a one minute short. It's a little micro short um, a couple of years ago to highlight child homelessness here, which is at appalling levels and is continuing to rise. And while and the two cross over a lot. Um homelessness amongst mothers with children, huge proportion is domestic violence. The people escaping domestic violence. There's a lot of women who are trapped in homes that they should not be in because of the housing crisis. So one thing knocks into the other a lot. So when I was looking between the two, um, the one of the biggest, uh, the highest number, the highest rising number of people becoming homeless in Australia is older women. And one of the big reasons behind that 
is domestic violence, is women eventually leaving situations that they were the victims of domestic violence. And when kids have grown up or whatever, and within a rental economy, within a place where there's, you know, a lot of renting and not being able to afford the rent alone. So it's, which is, it's incredibly, because so many of these women may have given up their jobs for whatever, 10 or 15 years, you know, are taking lesser paid jobs, are not being on a career path that would have meant that they were financially in a good place when it got to retirement age, are left virtually penniless because they gave up so much of their time in their life towards keeping a home and rearing children, which isn't valued. Um, and now in their latter years are in a situation where they can't afford are 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 in danger being in their own home. So um it's definitely something they're beginning to see here. There's definitely an increase in um homelessness amongst older people or you know financial issues amongst older people. And I think it's something that's gonna continue because as more and more property is purely rental um, and there's no security really with that. A lot of people, when they are reaching retirement age or if something happens and one isn't working or there is a separation due to domestic violence or anything else, they can no longer afford to rent. So they are now homeless because, you know, or else, and even going to other areas isn't necessarily viable because and not drive, they may not, you know, there's no family, friends, and they end up in very, very isolated. And um, there's been some very bad situations. And um, but certainly in Australia, I was, I think I was surprised because they always kind of felt like Australia was such a young, vibrant in my head. <laughs> I was going to say it's a young, vibrant place, but obviously it's all the same difficulties that everyone else has. But um, yeah, homelessness amongst older women is is on the rise and is becoming a bigger issue everywhere. I think the report, certainly the reports I read, were based in Australia. But I can I can see that it's it's more than just Australia. Right. No, I I had this experience with my um, my middle child when he was in high school. He's now in college, but. Um, you know, when something happens and you're just reading through something and you think it's just going to be regular sort of school forms, et cetera, and then something just sort of punches you in the gut that you read and you were not expecting it. It was all about, you know, the school schedule and the bus schedule and, uh, you know, all the things and don't park there and <laughs> whatever. Uh, but yeah, so there was this piece of paper that said, uh, based on if you need to take a bus to school, what area do you live in and uh, where can we reach you? Do you have a phone? Do you have a place that you live? Uh, are you in somebody else's home? Are you in a shelter? Uh, are you homeless? And it was just all of these categories. And these are high school students. So I'm thinking of the ages of their parents who are 30s, 40s, 50s. So it's like this demographic that you're talking about. Um, and I thought, oh, wow. And, and there were so many different categories. And, and uh, it's so humbling and shocking. And it's a good reminder, though, uh, about how, you know, kids go to school and they have to work against their lives. There seems to be a real lack of understanding of the emotional effects that that has on a child. And I mean, here there's, there's an awful lot where it, what they would call hidden homeless, i.e. they're like they're sofa surfing or they're living in overcrowded houses with family and things like this. And then there's obviously people who are in the refuges who may have children and that. And then there's others who are in B&Bs and um, they're called family hubs, which are basically a new institution for women and their children. But um, you've kids who are, and I certainly know from, 
friends of mine who are teachers, they're getting, they're co- they need to take two or three buses to school. They're getting up at six o'clock in the morning. They're living in a hotel. They have to be monitored at all times. You've no idea who's in the room next door to you. So you can't let your child out the door because literally anybody could be on a corridor and you've no idea who that person might be. Um, there's no play areas. Children aren't able to walk when they should be walking because there's have to be in buggies because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to walk around. A whole family are a number of children inside one room. I mean, that has to be anxiety inducing. I mean, I know I couldn't spend my time with my family, with my own family inside one room, you know, and um, and things like, and during school time, it's actually, certainly from some of the kids' perspectives, it's actually better during school time because there's somewhere to go every day and they know they'll get a lunch even if they don't have one. They know their teacher will bring them because here we don't, a lot of schools wouldn't have canteens or anything. So, but they know um, the teachers are bringing in lunches every day to children and they're bringing in sun cream and they're bringing in cereals for the morning and they're, you know, they're doing all this stuff. But when school is not in, there's nothing. And all of a sudden you're in a room or else walking the streets for 11 hours a day because some of them, they have to be out of during the daytime. They're only nighttime. Yes. That, right. And, and I mean, it's so lovely to hear what teachers do and what teachers do all over the world. Um, and bringing in a sweater and, you know, and, and tissues, whatever, just everything, being the parent, uh, filling in the blanks, what the child needs without them having to ask. And it's really, it, it's very, very moving. But yes, there are some kids I know who were in environments where they never knew what was going to happen at home. And they also did, they hated school vacations. It's interesting. I'm now remembering that. They didn't like summers and they didn't like um, holiday breaks at school because then they couldn't get a break from all that was happening at home. And at least they could go somewhere. Like you're saying, it was safe enough. There was predictability, you know, and also a nice distraction. Uh, and um, and an environment that felt more controlled, and that's you know when when you see in these movies of the bell rings and it's the beginning of summer vacation and all the kids go running and screaming out, right? Like you want that to be every child's experience, and unfortunately, it, it is not. And so I I want to make sure also to mention about men because I know you already mentioned it, and I try to be mindful of it too that while it happens more often with women, it does also happen with men. And what have you studied just in terms of uh, domestic violence with men? Here is, here would be the vast majority would be female victims. Less so, now I don't have the statistics here, but I remember when I was going through them being really surprised because it was a much higher percentage of men who were victims of domestic violence in America than it was anywhere else, which I was really surprised about. I mean, it was, um, I think it might have been two in 10 or something here, but it was much closer to, it was like three point something or four in 10. You know what I mean? It was much, much higher there. It shocked me. Um, because, I mean, obviously I'm aware and it's, you know, it's it has been highlighted and there are a number of groups and I think sometimes it's hard, much harder for men to report and I think they have a harder time being believed. I think they have a harder time telling their friends and they have to deal with an awful lot more stigma in some ways. Um, like stigma is there for both, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think they have a more difficult time coming to terms with the idea and acknowledging the idea that they are victims of domestic violence and it's which is it it's kind of it's this weird it's one of my sort of little things it's like patriarchy is so damaging to men and women you know what I mean because it is this patriarchal attitude of men are supposed to be strong, hard, tough, determined, this, that, and the other. And 
women are supposed to be more subdued and loving and caring and blah, blah, blah. And it's so horrendously damaging to both men and women because, and actually in some, some ways I find, I think it's a huge part of male mental health problems is this thing of this strange expectation that you have to be hard you know and you hear it all the time it's like oh they need to toughen up no they don't need to toughen up they're wonderful just as they are you know leave them alone it's you know why is it why is being tough or mean or hard celebrated you know i don't and i think that maybe that's one of the things that i'm saying about wanting to show and wanting to see wonderful men on screen because it's something i love <laughs> you know it's um it's a representation of a man that i want my sons to see i want them looking at his screen and going he's a wonderful man he's you know caring he's fun that all these things and he's a wonderful man that, like that's that's who i want them to grow up to be you know that's what i would hope and i think this hard this attitude of the winner takes it all and competitive like i mean i don't, don't get me wrong i love competitive sports and watch them all the time and go on get in there but you know what i mean the thing that um that that's how you need to be i think is wrong because it's 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 not natural for the vast majority of people to be like that and um and that's one of the reasons I think men who are in the situation who are being abused have such a hard time coming forward. And because there's an attitude out there of like, oh, sure, she's, you know, you can't take control of your own house. What's wrong with you? Sort of attitude, you know, or which is the sort of thing an abuser would come out with. You know, it's undermining, it's bullying, it's abusive. So, um, yeah, I think it's something, again, that needs to be t- spoken about more. And I think it should be out there more. And hopefully it will be. Um, yeah. But it, the fact is the vast majority are still women. But for the me- for those men who are victims, it's it's so important for, the- for them to be, listened to, to be understood and to be believed and to be heard. It's- right. And I think, uh, as with most things like this, there's going to be underreporting for both genders. Uh, and I think also when you have people who are, let's say, part of a police force or whatever, and they come in and they completely abandon you emotionally and physically, they just come in and make fun or don't take it seriously or ask in front of the other spouse. They don't talk to you separately. Or you don't want to speak separately because then you're going to be grilled on what did you say to the police officer? It's not safe for you. There's so much there that's going to keep people from being able to say what's true, get the help they need, feel like there are powers that be that are there to protect them. You know, there's so much that can go right in those moments, but it so often goes so wrong. And so I was curious also, just as we're sort of finishing up, I I know that uh, I've had an interesting experience with some of my podcasts where I've gotten responses that were unexpected. Uh, and I think probably the, the most I got that were unexpected uh, was about a podcast I did about um, um, apartheid uh, and uh, in South Africa and, and what happens when you drill a certain message into people's heads on both sides, really, but just, it wasn't a political discussion. It was about indoctrination and, and the far reaches of that and multi-generational sort of transmission of it, et cetera, and how people then are highly reactive and uh, kind of still angry. And, and in fact, the responses I got sort of proved that point. <laughs> I was, I was going to say to them, you guys, you're actually you know, letting me, I'm my guest who I was interviewing, who was raised during that time, who was talking about how he still has this under his skin, that, that, that the reactionary responses, the angry responses, the pointing fingers, the how dare you uh, responses were uh, kind of incredible. 
um, where I got things like, you know, as a Jew, wouldn't you be more cautious about um, sending out uh, messages to the public that are false, just like Hitler did? I'm thinking, what? <laughs> like, where, where did that come? So uh, I don't know if you've gotten such hostile responses, but I do know that we um, we did talk briefly about the responses to the film, which I'm sure by and large are wonderful and powerful. I mean, it was, you, you, could, you could hear as I was listening and I was watching the film when it ended, there was this, oh, like everyone was so happy. And again, I don't want to give it away, but everyone was so happy during one part of it, not telling which part, uh, and, um, and frustrated, and, but so involved, you know, and they could feel it either from their experiences or other people's. But I'm sure there also is some feedback you got that was surprisingly kind of not that. And I'm curious if that has to do with bias or what. What do you think? I, I do think it makes people uncomfortable because I think now I'm not talking across the board. I've had a lot of different responses. But one thing I have noticed is. And I think because everybody knows this relationship. You know what I mean? I think this is the thing. Everybody knows a relationship, be it their parents, their aunts and uncles, their friends, their cousin. They all know the relationship. They've all sat there, or if they're in it themselves, they've all sat there. They've all been uncomfortable and been like, you know, but said nothing, going, ah, I'm just imagining it. And when it's put on a screen in front of them and called abuse, which is what it is, it makes them incredibly uncomfortable. And some of the responses were things like, oh, but she's an intelligent woman, which is like a rag to a bull with me because yes, that is the whole point. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter if, as I was saying, one of the cases that was up, this wonderful woman who's an MEP over in England, um, in government stood up in the chamber and spoke about being the victim of domestic violence while she was in the chamber. You know, it it makes no difference. Background, colour, creed, or sex, male or female, it makes no difference. Anybody can be a victim of domestic violence. And I think people need to understand that and stop othering it. And I think that's one of the things that's happened a lot. They like to think, oh, well, that's just a working class problem or that's just a this or if they can other it then it's not going to affect their world and their life but you can't other domestic violence because it goes right the way across it's not it's not one part of a community or another it's in every community and um so yeah there have been people who are most uncomfortable and i think that has it is what it is. There's nothing you can do about someone being uncomfortable because they're learning what course of control is. Um, I've also had people, which I found incredible, who came up and said, I recognize bits of myself and I need to do something about it, which is incredible and was amazing and incredible courage. I mean, I have to say, I was blown away at the level of courage to actually come up. And it is someone you know, that I know and uh, say, do you know what? I see bits of my relationship and it's something that I need to address and I need to think about, which I thought was amazing. And I also had actually the premiere, which was in Galway Film Flat, which is an amazing festival in Galway. Um, and a lovely woman came up and she was just, just about out of a course of controlling, very, very frightening course of controlling relationship and she gave me a big hug and she was like I wish I'd seen it three years ago because then I would have known and I thought that was if I never got another review in my life of anything I ever did that's the best review that I could ever get uh -huh. I mean and um about myself and Caroline like I mean, it is kind of intimidating and scary and you don't want to annoy people because 
you need people to like your work for you to have a job you know but um there's some things that are more important you know and there's some things that you just need to put out there and hopefully as I say I what I believe is that if education was brought into every school in the country everywhere and relationship education I mean it would you could you could really make a huge impact on domestic violence in one generation it would be so simple but it's the willingness to do that you know it's the willingness to actually go do you know what this is what we're going to do and you know it, dep- it depends on who's making the decisions as well and whether they're a narcissistic personality you know and there is that thing of narcissistic personalities tend to do incredibly well because they don't care you know they don't care whose head they stand on to get to where they want to go so in a lot of fields they do do incredibly well so depending on who's making the decisions i suppose and um, when it comes down to things like that but yeah i think one of the things and actually it wasn't i, I forgot about it until after i was talking to you the other day but um I, I was a victim of road rage a good number of years ago and i kind of not that i'd forgotten about it but it was anyway i was driving out and a, a guy decided that i had done something wrong and he drove de- the wrong way down the road and pulled a huge Dewey across the road in the middle of the road in front of me in uh, busy traffic. And I had two very small children in the car at the time. But I was, anyway, I was very cool, cool and composed. And uh, as it happened, a guard, the car was going up the road. This is after the fact. This is after the cars were stopped. And I pulled over and he'd come over and he was screaming in the window. And he was like, what? you know, and effing and blind. And I had like two, three year olds. And I was like, excuse me, I have children in the car. Will you watch your tone? I'm being very calm because I've worked in areas with, I've worked with people with uh, mental health issues in my past. I worked with people with schizophrenia and manic depression. I've brother is severely learning disabled. So I've been brought up and I've always known and been around people who had various difficulties. And I knew because by his behavior that there was something very wrong other than what was actually going on. And um, anyway, the guards pulled up and they took him back to his car, which was still in the middle of a junction in the middle of the road on a bridge. Like it was a, and uh, the guard turned around and he was like, what? And I was like, well, I was driving down the road here. This is what happened. Da, da, da. And he turned around and said, you must really have done something to piss him off. I, I actually could not believe it as a response and I was like no <laughs> listen to me again and uh, oh well you must have been looking at your phone or you must have been it's like no listen to me again but he just wanted it to go away therefore it had to be my fault but all I could think at the time was oh my god imagine if he was walking into someone who's a victim of domestic violence because that is the sort of response that is and was. And I remember in the 80s and in the 90s, that was the attitude and it was the response. And I think it is subtly still there. I think, you know, people are still blamed for being victims until we get over that. And that's why people say, oh, well, the character is very well educated. Well, yes, she is very well educated. What difference does that make? It makes no difference. But they still need this, as I say, other, say, oh, well, it's only that sort of a person who's going to be the victim or going to be the perpetrator of domestic violence. It's only that sort of person. Um, And being faced with the reality, which is, it can just as easily be a middle-class, well-educated person as it can be anyone else. They don't like it and it makes them uncomfortable. So... There's nothing you can do about that, but I think it's it's something that needs to be widely acknowledged. And until it's widely acknowledged, more and more victims, including male victims, will not be believed. You know, because you know the most likely, probably, to be dismissed a lot of the time are male victims. It's like with homelessness; they like to think it only affects people with mental health issues and drug addiction. That's not the case. You can go out and talk to homeless people and see 
they don't have a drug addiction and they don't have mental health issues. Just life has happened in a way that is, they've ended up in this situation. And, um, but it's a way, I think it's a way people cocoon themselves and they protect themselves from having to acknowledge what the reality is. And because it avoids, it makes you avoid having to fix it or having to do too much about it. Right. If they can blame the person themselves, if it's their own fault, then there's nothing anyone else can do. And I think that's why the victim blaming happens. Yeah. And I, and I think it, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, first of all, wouldn't it be nice if, if this were part of a curriculum in schools about relationships and about how to be treated, just like you're saying, because not that I have anything against uh, any previous math professors, but I have used my trigonometry education zero times in my life, (laughs) but it, it was a big pain and a year of schooling where it could have been used for something that I I was actually going to have some help with and could have practical application. But um, I do think that when people say things like, well, but she's, she seems so bright or she's so intelligent. uh, While I think that that should be scrapped just in terms of a response anyway, I'm wondering why it doesn't automatically go to the abuser. Let's say we'll keep with the gender, even if it's not always this, but well, if he's so bright, why does he have to do this to other people to make himself feel special? So why isn't the focus on him? Like, let's use that same argument. It seems a bizarre thing to say. But there is generally a little bit of a distrust of women in some ways. Um, you know, you go and buy a car and you get things like, mm. oh, well, is your husband going to come and see it? you know well I don't know about there what you do here are you are you know signing off on something it's like oh well do you want to get someone else to have a look at that or you know I think there's a very for some reason certainly I think men trust men's opinion more a lot of the time than they do women's and I think it is that mistrust of interpretation. Like, oh, but was it really? You know, that it's that sort of thing. Like the guard saying to me, ah, oh, you really must have done something. You know what I mean? It's that just level of mistrust. And it's, it is treating someone like a child. And I mean, I suppose... You do see it a lot, you know, um, you do see perpetrators of crime, certainly here, um, being like, oh, but, you know, it's always the mother's fault anyway, full stop. <laughs> if, there's a, if there's something wrong, it's always like, oh, his mother, <laughs> you know, it's all her fault. Um, but you do see a lot of, uh, you know, things brought up about had difficult childhoods and all that which I do agree with being brought up because I think it's incredibly important if someone has been a victim they are more likely to become a perpetrator you know that we know that we know about imitating behavior we know about um damage that can be done to children from a very young age because of excessive adrenaline which is brought on through fear if they're brought up with fear we know that damages their brain and damages it permanently we, you know, it's not like we don't have the knowledge um, as to why things happen and why they are so damaging to an individual for for life, for the rest of their life. So I don't know. I don't know why it's always the victim who is judged. And I think it is because people just don't understand how hard it is to leave. Because it's always like, oh, but why didn't she leave? But why didn't he leave? To where? You know, if they've been financially abused, if they don't have an income, if there's no refuge spaces, if there is a rental crisis, if their kids are in school, if they have their job, if, you know, all these reasons. And it's been proven over and over and over and over again. The most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is when someone first gets out of it 
because that is when the real anger and aggression comes. And I mean, there's a law over in England, which was brought in a couple of years ago, that if someone has a history of domestic violence, their new partner has the right to be told by the police. You know, the police will tell them, you know, your new boyfriend was done for 80 counts of domestic violence. And um, it was brought up here recently. And they were saying, you know, is it something that we'd bring in here? And they basically said, oh, well, we don't think we need it. <laughs> and you're like, why would you think? And there are repeat offenders. There have been people killed by repeat offenders who have abused numerous women over long periods of time. And that information is important. <laughs> if so, you know, you know, if you're getting a job, you get a guard check. So if you're going to work with kids, you have what's called a guard check. Like I'm working on the thing at the moment, which is the TV thing with young people. And I actually have numerous of them because everything you do, you have one individually for each place. And um, so you get a guard the background check if you're going to work with someone who's in any way vulnerable. Um, a child or a person with a disability, learning disability. And the place you're going to work for sends in the form, all your history, all your previous addresses, PPS numbers, da da da. da. The guards come back and say, yeah, Grant, nothing, nothing there to be worried about. And off you go and you do your job. Someone could end up in a relationship and the person there may have been abused children before, partners before, you know, that's all there. And and the guards a lot of the time will know and they can't say anything which is a horrendous situation even though they know chances are and what the consequences will be also I think that kind of automatic thinking you know we're all guilty of it because of our conditioning that we're going to make assumptions and we have to stop ourselves um from thinking what did this person do to put themselves in that situation and, and having the focus immediately drawn towards I think what's easier for people, because the, then if they look at the person who's done the bad thing, then they have to get sort of really angry about it or work to help stop it, or there's more work involved. So uh, so I think people sort of say, oh, it's just easier just to, uh, you know, blame the victim moving on. But it's hor- horrendous for the victim, of course, when that happens. So I think for all of us to be reminded to to watch out when we make an automatic assumption and to know that it's a conditioned response uh, from our um, social environments, from the media, from everything, uh, and to stop and to not blame anyone until you have the fact, um, and to actually not even start with any kind of blame, but to start with compassion. I'm so sorry that happened to you, and do you need anything? And even if you don't know if it's their fault or not, still they're suffering and, you know, and can I, can I offer you something as opposed to going to you're the judge and jury and you need to decide, you know, who's at fault. Yeah. And uh, just one of the things I spoke to Adam to the end of that is also people have to realize that p- victims of abuse and victims of assault and children of abusers and all the jet will have, um, PTSD. They will have post-traumatic stress disorder. They will have, issues that should be and need to be treated Uh, and so someone escaping from a violent or dangerous relationship is in a situation where they do have post-traumatic stress and yes maybe their personality has changed and maybe things are a little bit strange for them but that needs to be acknowledged as well that um it is a trauma that takes time to get over and to get through and help and support with that is hugely important by everyone around, you know, and sometimes that can come out in sadness and depression and, you know, elation in all sorts of ways. And, but it does need to be acknowledged as well. And it's one of the things that um, sometimes are forgotten because people think, oh, well, she's out now, she's grand. But that isn't really the, the full story. There's a, There's a lot of stuff to unpack and go through right. 
before they actually are free of what has happened in the past, like with anything else, like with anything that happens to anyone. Right. Okay. So thank you. And thank you for doing this film and others and for all of the great writing that you do to help illuminate certain kinds of issues and uh, important things that people should know about uh, that are for themselves also, um, for what they've experienced now, what they might experience in the future, what to watch out for to keep themselves safe, for other people in their lives, for their next descendants, you know, and to sort of keep it a safer world if possible, but also a, um, a more compassionate world. Let's understand this together and let's see what we can do together. So thank you, thank you. And if anyone is listening who, as we say here in California, who are in the business and is interested in sort of talking uh, about how to potentially acquire this film and show it, just be in touch. But the, I'm going to make a, a link to the trailer available in the ad for this show so people can check that out. And I hope to be able to connect with you another time and learn from you more, you know, and you've, you've shared so much that's so valuable and, and important and, and heartfelt. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I have to say, I was really, really touched and delighted that you enjoy the film so much, like it, because it is no matter what, you're so scared going in and showing a little bit of yourself and a little bit of what you're trying to do. And it's really, really appreciated. And not only that, but the podcast in general and having these things out in the open and having these discussions, because I think it's so important um, for everyone in society to just take a little step back every now and again and really think and acknowledge these things as they've been through. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. One more thing before you go. I am so grateful to Russian for giving us not only her insights, but in general for the work she does to get important messages out there to the public through the medium of film. And again, when I saw the short film called Run at that Irish film festival, I was so struck by the subtlety in the messages. But the subtlety is what gets under your skin. It's the thing that went right through me and left that kind of impression that it does when you experience it in person. One of the things that Roshan started speaking about during her previous episode last week was the idea of parental alienation. And this week, we got a little bit more into talking about parental alienation along with a lot of other subjects. The idea of parental alienation ties in so unfortunately well with this idea of subtlety because. While there are some parents who, while divorcing or after divorcing, are flagrantly angry at the other parent when there are children involved, and truthfully, sometimes rightfully so, tremendously rightfully so, that they are so angry because what happened to them was so wrong. And there are some parents who will say, I hate your father or I hate your mother. They hurt me beyond anything or anyone has ever done or could ever do. And I never want you to have a relationship with them. Or it's because of them that you no longer have a family, that this whole thing has happened to you. And I will never be able to talk to them again, or I will never be able to trust anyone again. And I will live alone forever because I will never be able to love someone who could hurt me in the same way. And I will never be okay with you spending time with your other parent, etc., etc. But more often than not, the messages are not such a slap in the face as they are subtle. Kind of in that subtlety that makes an impact, and you can't quite pin it on certain words, but there was a tone or there was a hidden message, and you're left feeling it. It's like the coercive control that Roshan and I talked about, where you're left with that feeling, but it might not be obvious to the listener or even obvious to you after something was uttered that was actually devastating or insulting, but went right to your core. So it's like instead of someone coming up to you and saying, you look terrible today, the person doing coercive control might say something like, hmm, I thought that the 
time we spent together was more important to you. Well, maybe important enough for you to spend a little more time putting yourself together, but I guess it's not. So, is that an insult? Is it a comment about how you just are not giving the person you are with enough respect and consideration if they spend time putting themselves together, but more than you do? Is it a statement about questioning how committed you are to that relationship, or is it just a veiled insult about your appearance to make you feel bad and insecure? When children are told during a period of separation or divorce of their parents and during a time when custody is being figured out, especially if it's messy with the legal system, sometimes parents will know that being over the top and obvious in their hatred for the child's other parent will just make the child shut down or become defensive of that attacked parent. So instead, they'll find ways to send messages like the following. Hmm. Oh, it's a shame. I see that your mother is not here at your baseball game. I feel bad for you that she didn't take the time to come see you, especially knowing all that we're all going through. And chances are, in that moment, the parent saying that knew why the other parent wasn't there because they were home with a cold or because there was no way for them to get away from work in time for the game. And they left a message saying how terrible they felt about missing the game and could they please pass this on to the child at the game. But sometimes the alienating parent will not do the right thing, will not transmit that message, will not say the right thing in that moment, like, I know. Your mother loves you, and she was not able to be here for the following reasons. And she let me know ahead of time so that you wouldn't be surprised by her absence. And she wishes you well and wants to be in touch as soon as the game is over to let her know what happened. So we'll make sure to contact her on the way home. And so that would be the right thing to say if that's accurate. But instead, the child is usually just given a message of adult judgment about the parent not being there and read somehow as proof that they don't care, but at least they have one parent who cares. And the more manipulative parent might use blaming and anger or will try some level of emotional collusion, like the two of you are in this together, suffering side by side at the hands of the other parent. The one who comes across as the better parent is often the more fun parent, the happier parent, or conveys that they are the one who cares more, the one who will always be there for the child. But the truth is that the one who is being manipulative is at the end of the day not being caring at all about the child. They either at the very least want to win a game and are using their child as a pawn. At most, they are not able or not willing we're not interested in the long-term damage that this can do to a child because while you find ways to have the child connect with you against the other parent, you are being an emotional thief. You are robbing a child. You are robbing the child of being able to, with their full heart, still have a connection with both of their parents. And you are robbing your ex of having a relationship with the child. A few years back, I wrote a book for children about divorce. It came from many hours of working with children whose parents were divorcing, parents of any gender, and family situations of many constructs as family is family. What came through time after time in my conversations with my young clients that was represented in this book, which is called Now I Know, Kids Talking to Kids About Divorce, and it has a journal in the back for kids and parents to write in, which actually has been the kids' and parents' favorite part of the book. And if you want to check it out, it's available at Barnes & Noble. And also there's a Facebook page for it under my name and the title, Now I Know Kids Talking to Kids About Divorce. But again, one of the main issues is that kids say they do not ever want to be put in the middle. They do not want to hear one parent bad-mouthing the other. They do not want to be taken aside to have the parents speak badly about the other parent. And no matter how clear-cut it might be to the rest of the world if there was a good guy and a bad guy in this situation, kids need to know that they will be safe. And part of that feeling of safety comes from not being drawn into adult discord and parental discord because they don't know what to say and they don't know how to feel and they don't know how to respond 
And they're triangulated because they cannot please one parent without betraying and hurting the other. And they also don't know where the truth lies. So they don't know if the stories they're being told are accurate at all. And they wish they could be left alone. And they wish they could be left to feel the way they want to feel about either parent. But sometimes they feel they cannot say anything to the parent who is saying negative things about the other parent because they don't want to upset that parent. And they don't want that parent to be upset with them. So they feel trapped. Kids also like to know that they come from good stock. So if they hear one parent or the other saying, your parent is an awful person and was probably born that way and has a personality disorder and has something tremendously wrong with them, kids will often think that means that a part of them has something wrong with it. It is additionally very hard for children who are only children. They tell me they become the confidant of their single parent to a degree that is very uncomfortable. Sometimes, on the one hand, it makes them feel special, but also to a degree where they feel they are the parentified child, where they've become the best friend and therapist of that parent. And then they have to subvert and ignore and hide the facts that they still might have warm feelings towards the other parent who is being berated because they want to appear loyal and sometimes also so they can show empathy. In Ireland, there was a recent decision by the World Health Organization to recognize parental alienation, and it's been a vastly important way to educate people about how destructive it is and it can be. And it was included in the 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases to come into effect at the beginning of 2022. It's a concept that is often misunderstood, says Brian O'Sullivan, a consultant systemic family therapist working in Dublin. He organized a recent conference in Trinity College in Dublin to raise awareness of the condition among social, legal, and mental health practitioners and enable what he calls informed conversations and debate about parental alienation and what it is, and more importantly, what it isn't. So the starting position must be to ask if the child has valid reasons for rejecting a parent, such as abuse or neglect. And if the answer to that question is yes, it's not alienation, it's something else. But in the most severe cases, we're talking about psychological and emotional child abuse. The effects of parental alienation on a child can include clinical depression, anxiety, fractured attachment, suicidal ideation, deliberate self-harm, alcohol and substance abuse, premature sexual activity, and academic underachievement. And most parents will very quickly motivate themselves to change their behavior and place their children first, he says. Whereas at the severe end of the spectrum, there is one parent who is pathologically determined to erase the other parent out of the child's life. Essentially, that parent is unwilling or unable to place the developmental needs of the child ahead of their own in this conflict. In such severe cases, proactive and firm decisions that privilege the interests of the child are needed. According to Dr. Craig Childress, psychologist and expert in parental alienation syndrome, children don't turn away from parents unless there is a perpetrator lurking and a perpetrator to whom a child is afraid. Children don't turn away from pathological parenting. They are too afraid to. But they will turn away from a loving, kind, healthier version of a parent. There is nothing to fear there. They know the parent will love them no matter what. These are the parents of whom the child is most afraid to lose, not the parent with whom they can feel consistently safe and loved. So this means that the parent who is being kind and good and present is often the one that the child feels that they can move away from, and they do move away from because they know the parent will be there no matter what, and that parent deals with that loss very directly, and it is very painful. Sometimes in these situations, you can tell there's been parental alienation from looking at the behaviors of the kids. The child seems to know more details than are necessary and are for adult consumption or have certain legal terminology that you did not share with them. and also. The child is being used as a spy, and you're being asked certain questions about your personal life or your plans or your finances in order to feed that information back to the alienating parent. Or you might find your child kind of 
sneaking a peek at your phone to see what you're up to to report back to the alienating parent. You might also find that your child is very oppositional and is very angry at you and changes their tone with you, has no patience for you, and is mimicking the alienating parent in order to please the alienating parent. And sometimes also, if they really are being manipulated mentally, there is a rewriting of history that takes place where you finally notice, and this is sort of the last straw for a lot of parents, a lot of very loving parents, that their child cannot identify or remember positive bonding experiences in their history with you. There is a quote by the critic George Jean Nathan, which goes, No man can think clearly when his fists are clenched. I would like to think that that's the reason the alienating parent does what it does. Because of anger or revenge or stubbornness or being determined not to lose a competition, that this keeps them from thinking clearly, from seeing the damage they're doing, how they're putting themselves before the needs of their child, which is never good and never healthy and not at all good parenting. And it's satisfying in a way it shouldn't be, because if you get some level of satisfaction or glee from knowing that you've played with your child's mind, then you need to step back and look at that. And if you're able to feel strong enough and brave enough and selfless enough once you see what you're doing, then you can actually have the chance to reverse it. The reason that the programming gets so etched in stone in a child's mind is that the message is reinforced over and over without any change. But if the alienating parent decides to do what's best for the child and to get their own needs met elsewhere and in other ways and win other battles but not at their child's expense, then they can actually turn things around. It takes some doing and can be quite confusing, of course, at first for the child, but it's actually something I've seen in my practice that parental alienation syndrome can be in part, sometimes almost in full, reversible. All you need is for a parent who has caused this damage to care enough about the long-term impact that this is having on their child, and they need to take that into consideration and care more about that than the short-term satisfaction they get from having those little hollow and ultimately selfish wins. It has happened that as the child gets older, they can see how their alienating parent played with their minds, and then they sometimes never trust that parent again or forgive that parent again or find the ability to love that parent again. So for anyone listening who has been a manipulative and alienating parent, there is a great chance that after a lifetime of those little manipulative hollow wins, everyone loses. Please remember that. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.